Good morning, everybody. Uh, somebody's not really happy right at the moment, but that's okay. Sometimes we're not really happy either. We just don't sound it out quite as much, right? Some of you know me better than others, so let me start a little bit by telling you a bit about my background. My name is Carol Willis, and uh, my journey through churches has been pretty eclectic. I grew up in the Church of the Brethren. It's a form of Anabaptist church, and it's also pretty progressive. Even back in the day when I was growing up, it was pretty progressive. I, it's where I first came to know Jesus. I went to a Mennonite college, and then I finished my bachelor's degree at a Catholic university. I fell in love and married a man who, when he became a Christian, led us into very fundamentalist Baptist churches. Uh, he became a pastor and pastored four of those churches along the way. Eventually, we migrated into Reformed circles, and the last church that we participated in together and that I stayed in for a while after he passed away was an Evangelical Free. When I moved here after he died to be closer to my children and grandchildren, I visited a whole bunch of churches for a while. And eventually, I learned about the sacred grace. And here I am, five years later. When I first met Nathan, our pastor, I asked a whole bunch of questions. I had no interest in participating in what I would call a standard conservative evangelical church. I had had my fill of that. So I asked a lot of questions, including about the role of women in leadership. So here we are today and uh, how the church would handle some social justice issues. Uh, I've come to deeply appreciate the neighborhood or parish church model that the sacred grace functions according along those lines of, and many other aspects of this church that I believe make it unique and authentic. When I was asked to serve on the board of trustees and then as an elder, of this church, I said yes, and I'm happy to serve you all in that regard. And it's been really a joy to get experiences like this when I've been able to share my heart with you. Today I'm gonna to talk about the four core values of the sacred grace. What, you didn't know there was such a thing? I am not surprised because they just kind of hang out in the background. We don't talk about them a lot, but they really are the foundation of how we do church around here. Um, we, you, uh, pre pandemic, we had a message series on those. And, but that was like, what, another age ago? And so this is a good time to revisit them a bit. The four values of the sacred grace are grace, no surprise there. Faith, family, and place. So starting with grace. Our lives are lived in response to the eternal and extravagant grace of God. We believe grace is the defining characteristic of God toward us. The very last words of the Bible say, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. In fact, these words or similar are used as the benediction to most of the letters that form part of the New Testament. Grace can be defined as unmerited favor, benefit, or credit. In other words, we don't have to earn our way into God's favor. My husband used to answer the question, how are you, with better than I deserve. 
He meant it as a reminder of God's grace that he had experienced. But there was always something about it that kind of niggled at the back of my mind. And I think what that had to do with was it still made it seem like this whole idea of a relationship with God was based on a merit system, that the merit system still had something to say in there. And we'd better not forget that uh, we were pretty worthless and we really didn't deserve anything. I'm not sure that that's really a good way to describe grace. I think grace means God has released us from any kind of rating system. The rating system becomes meaningless. It's a moot point because God looks at us and sees Jesus. God delights in us. If God had a phone, he would have our pictures on it, and he would turn it around and show it to everybody he encountered. He thinks we're... He, he loves us that way. Uh, of course we don't. Of course we don't deserve it. Um, we're usually a pretty hot mess, aren't we? We're not delightful at all a lot of the time. And yet, and yet, he sees us as the people he created us to be. We pray in the generosity prayer every Sunday that as God's daughters and sons, we want to show the world what he is like. One way we can practice that is to extend the most generous interpretation possible to other people's actions and words and intentions. Uh, that, that's what grace looks like when we extend it to other people. There are a couple things grace is not. Grace is not a license to do whatever we want. That's cheap grace. That makes a mockery of what it costs Jesus to extend grace to us. And grace is not blindness to abuse. I bring this up because I know that the Christian church has, from time to time, responded to cries for help from abused people by admonishing them that they need to extend grace and think the best of the abuser. And this is dangerous. Grace extends generosity of spirit to the vulnerable. Those who flaunt their own power and control of others are really not in a position to even be able to receive grace. We need protection from them, protection and accountability. Too often, even in the church, we lose sight of grace, and when that happens, the consequences can be tragic. Like I said, for most of my children's growing up years, we were in very fundamentalist churches that preached grace, but that were so strict and narrow that grace couldn't show up in real life. I respect my kids' privacy, but I think it's safe to say that they all have at least some issues with Christianity because of that experience. At one point, my oldest child was going in a direction that really concerned me deeply. And after many, many discussions, which didn't bring us any closer together, which seemed didn't resolve any differences, I finally said, Maybe we just need to give each other grace. And they looked at me and said, Mom, I don't even know what that is. And that stopped me in my tracks. And I decided in that instant that my role as the mother of that adult child was to live out grace toward them and leave the convincing to the Holy Spirit. Because after all, God loves my children even more than I do. And the amazing thing is that in the meantime, 
the grace that I've been shown is to realize, yet again, <laughs> that I'm still in growth mode, too. I'm still a hot mess a lot of the times. I am still in the process of becoming. And this child and I have found many areas in common. We share many values and even some aspects of our spirituality we can find in common. In some cases, you may be someone's first experience of grace. So are we reflecting God's grace by practicing acceptance of others just as they are? Can we extend generous love and leave the convincing of error to the Holy Spirit? Even when things look really bad and bleak, can we remember hope? Because as Anne Lamont has said, grace bats last. Which brings us to the second value, faith. Because of faith, we trust that grace bats last. Hebrews 11, if you haven't read that for a while, the faith chapter, I suggest you take an opportunity to look at it again. Hebrews 11 says, For faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do we really believe God makes all things new? Do we really believe that all people, including ourselves, are in the middle of God growing us up? That systems can change? Let's not fall into cynicism. Cynicism is the opposite of faith. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith doesn't have all the answers. Faith leaves plenty of room for ambiguity and discernment. And faith says it's okay to say, I don't know. Faith is also not toxic positivity. We don't have to put a happy face on everything because we lament in faith too. Faith is seeing clearly that the world is not as it should be and that God won't leave it that way. And then faith is not the health and wealth gospel. Sometimes it gets presented that way. Um, our faith really doesn't guarantee that we'll be healthy and wealth is not an evidence of faith. Those are twisted versions of what faith is, actually is. Then who and what do we put our faith in? Our leaders, the church, our bank accounts, our own strength and wisdom. Hopefully, we can trust those, mostly, to a certain extent. And yet, God is the only one completely reliable. Kathleen Norris, in her book, Amazing Grace, suggests thinking of faith as a verb, as something we do. We trust we lean on, we wait on God, even in the face of shootings and assaults and injustices, personal tragedies, so much more. And we can do that because we know God is not done writing this kingdom story. We're in the middle chapter. I don't even know what's on the next page, and somehow I don't think you do either. Sometimes our faith is strong, and sometimes it's really wobbly. That's okay, too. Even spiritual giants, what we think of as spiritual giants, like Mother Teresa or Martin Luther, 
have had their dark seasons of the soul when they felt alone and abandoned, sometimes for a long time. One of the good things about this being a church-wide value of faith is that when I feel wobbly and can barely see God, some of you can come along and bear me up. And then it turns, and it's the other way. You embody Jesus to me. I embody Jesus to you. Faith is not a solo act. Which brings us to the third value, family. The church is the new family established by Jesus. We're committed to love each other, learn from each other, and lead together. Whether single, married, widowed, divorced, fostered, adopted, or estranged, we're equally welcomed into the family of God. We pray this every Sunday. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And God tells us, I will be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. That makes us siblings. That makes Jesus our big brother. I really like that. I also love that this description, which comes from the official description of our value of faith, or of family, rather, includes the word estranged, because no one is too far gone. Our faith means we wait on God to renew and to heal and to transform people and relationships. God, doesn't in, God made us a family. He didn't make us a corporation or a political party. He has adopted us into this family. We might not know each other very well yet, but we're a multicultural family with different skin tones, income levels, uh, cultures, histories, and we might not agree with each other about everything, just like I don't agree with my two brothers about everything, but we're still family. The question is, do we seek to understand? Is our default a generous spirit toward each other? And is love our bedrock? We have to admit, too, that families are messy. Some are more nurturing than others. Some are toxic. Some are abusive, unfortunately. And every family has elements of dysfunction. You just don't get out of family without some kind of hurt. And yet we need families. That's part of how we're wired as humans. Here at the Sacred Grace, we aim to be a safe family. We can't be perfect, but hopefully we can be safe. Hal Miller, who is a house church leader, writes about the church as an extended family. The church as family expresses and nurtures our need for community. American culture has almost entirely fragmented the extended family. As a result, we experience a deep longing for the things the extended family used to provide, a network of close relationships outside the immediate, the stimulation of others who are different and yet closely related, a sense of security in having options beyond the immediate ones, just in case things don't quite work out well. The church as family can be a way of incarnating an answer to these longings. Incarnating. So right now, look to your left. I mean, literally, look to your left, look to your right, look in front of you, look in back of you. These are your brothers and sisters, your aunts and uncles, your cousins, or we can be. Before you leave today, find somebody, one of these family members that you haven't met yet, and talk to them. Ask a couple of questions. 
um, listen to what they say, and then uh, share something about yourself. See what you can find in common. As an introvert, I get that this can feel like a stretch sometimes, and I, I know I haven't been as good at myself as I could be for quite some time. I'm in a vulnerable group for COVID, and my caution has meant that I have connected less with people I don't know. And so I don't know lots of you yet. I'm sorry, and I hope to do better. Because we need each other. We really do. And then the fourth value is place. Our priority of place grounds us in living and leading an integrated life. We're called to live incarnationally. There's that word again. We accept both spiritual and social responsibility over the neighborhoods we call home. We intentionally invest in our neighbors, schools, local businesses, and civic governments. I love John 1.14 in the message where it says the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. As Gerhard Lofink explains, the communion of believers thus is not something that is merely spiritual and intellectual. It must be embodied. It needs a place, a realm in which it takes shape. Takes shape. This is what's happening here. We are the body of Christ, a form of incarnation at this time in this place. I moved here from Indiana, from the county where I was born and raised. It felt like home. It was home. And in some way, it will always be home to me. I had lived and worked there during the Great Recession, which was obviously a time of great economic hardship for a lot of people, and then community rebuilding. I felt like a vibrant participant in what God was doing there and then. Yet I yearned to live closer to my kids and grandkids after my husband died. So I waited it out through the recession until I could sell my house and find a job out here to move closer to them. And when that began to happen, and I began to make those plans, I started to ask God to give me a heart for my new city. I had lived in other places before, and I, I believed it would happen. I had experienced it, but I knew it wouldn't happen overnight. So the first way that it started was I started to think and pray and read about living in community. And then once I got here, this Inglewood area where I landed started to matter a whole lot to me. And that's why I'm here at the Sacred Grace, because I want to participate with God and all of you in taking social and spiritual responsibility for this place we call home. After being transplanted, I feel rooted and I feel like I have an integrated life. Before we move away from place, I think it's important to mention that ultimately we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and God loves the whole world. Inglewood, Colorado, the US are parts of the whole. As Shane Claiborne has said, the problem with patriotism is that it's just too small. God invites us to love bigger than biology or nationality. The Bible doesn't say, for God so loved America, but it says, for God so loved the world. Our love does, doesn't stop at borders. No wall can hold it back. God loves Highland Park, Illinois, and Uvalde, Texas, 
and Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and Guadalajara, Mexico, and Beijing, China, and every place else in the world just as much as he loves Englewood, Colorado. And God has taken on flesh and blood and moved into neighborhoods in all of those places. The church is local. The church is global. And it has always been both. Grace, faith, family, and place. Those are the four core sacred grace values. And they all fit together like pieces of a puzzle to make us do church the way that we do church. I'm grateful that we're all in it together. Let's pray. God, thank you for your gifts of grace, faith, family, and place. I'm grateful you brought me here and made me part of the Sacred Grace family. As we join in what you're doing in our neighborhoods, Spirit, guide us to embody your grace by faith. Amen.